Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 315, God Breathed. Can I please start with a plea to members? I have a strong suspicion that many of you have not managed to get into the habit of downloading your Shedcasts yet or even searching the library for a little bit of what you fancy. If you are not, or if you are having any trouble at all, please get in touch with me through the website comments, email, david. 54031 at gmail.com or Facebook or however you like. I can't have you not getting your money's worth. So we are in the middle of one of England's great national events. Alfred and his cakes, the Norman conquest, Agincourt, the Reformation, Trafalgar, Derby County winning the Football League in 1975 and the Great Armada. By the way, before we go back to the action, You know the way that it's called the Invincible Armada. It's always been a bit of a thing to make the patriotic English giggle, point at the Spanish and say, Invincible, eh? I reckon you lot were a bit big for your boots, weren't you? Well, I learned that apparently the name Invincible Armada was not a Spanish thing at all. It was the ever-in-your-face Burley, who wrote a pamphlet after the event which frankly falls into the gloating category of literature and unsporting behaviour and uses the Invincible Armada tag specifically in the interests of national gloating. For a baron of the realm and the Queen's secretary and all that, Burley wasn't a believer in necessarily behaving in a noticeably classy way. Up for a bit of good, honest bant was the lad. Anyway, where were we? 21st of July, 1588, 
After the first day of fighting, the English have had a bit of a shock. Their pulverizing strategy seems to be failing to pulverize. The Armada is sailing on beautifully organized and controlled and thoroughly deadly. The English guns are working overtime, but all they were doing is using up all our shot. The English blamed themselves. The majesty of the enemy's fleet, the good order they held, and the private considerations of our own wants did cause, in mine opinion, our first onset to be more coldly done than became the value of our nation and the credit of the English navy. At one stage, the Spanish flagship San Martin was engaged, for example, and only managed to get off 80 shots and received 500 English shots in return. But at the end of it all, she was, you know, absolutely fine, really. A few stays blown away, that's it, to be fair. Not good. English eyes were not smiling. Well, for the next few days, light breezes blew the armada up the channel. Now, we know what the plan was, but back then, the English, of course, did not. Obviously, a link-up with Palmer looked very likely, but was the armada planning to land on Blighty's shores before that and lay as waste while Palmer then came over on his own? So the English were not just in a bit of a panic about the fact that they appeared to be having little impact on the armada, but also it might be that when the Spanish reached the Isle of Wight, they would look to land. So, when the 23rd of July dawned, both fleets were off the Isle of Wight and this looked like decision time. Now, we don't know for sure what Medina Sidonia was thinking and his orders were specific. Don't even think of doing anything else until you have linked up with Palmer or I'll have your ears. But it seemed that Medina Sidonia did consider giving up his ears. The Solent, the area in between the Isle of Wight and the mainland, was the one area that his whole fleet could rest secure. Medina Sidonia was terrified of the lack in the plan of access to a deep water port, so if opportunity presented itself such as that, he might well go for it. And after all, he had an army himself of 18,000 men on board. Meanwhile then, Howard got his captains together. To try to combat the problem and increase their effectiveness, the English fleet was organised into four squadrons, now under Howard, Drake, Hawkins and Frobisher. In very light winds, they tried to divert the Armada, but to their horror, the Armada had achieved a dominant position at the entrance to the Solent. Now, for once, the English tactics that day achieved some success. Frobisher set himself apart from the rest of the fleet in an apparently vulnerable position at the east end of the Isle of Wight, potentially trapped against the lee shore. Ha ha! thought Medina Seronia. That is a boob, or whatever the Spanish is for boob. One of his most effective weapons had been a squadron of galleasses. Now a galleass is a combo of a galleon with its sails and rig and guns and a galley with its oars. In light winds they were a marvel and they'd already rescued the Grand Griffin from English hands, for example. So, the galleasses were sent into action, at which point they realised they'd been tricked. 
Frobisher knew the local conditions like the back of his hands, and he knew the existence of a race, an area of shoals and fast currents. In their haste to get at their prey, the galleasses came close to getting stuck in the race as the tide ebbed. And meanwhile, at close waters, the galleasses' main advantage turned to disadvantage. The English were able to shatter their oars with culverin fire. In the end, both sides managed to withdraw to avoid their own personal dangers. But the armada had been distracted, and at that very point, Drake launched a furious attack on the wing of the armada opposite the Solent, focusing fire on the flagship. The armada manoeuvred to combat the new threat and by so doing, drew them away from the Solent back up the channel and their opportunity to land was lost. It had been a close-run thing. Now the next two days saw little change in the fighting, a running battle with the English dancing around the Spanish like Muhammad Ali but failing to make any great impact. The Spanish maintaining perfect order and progressing surely, if slowly, towards Flanders. So, I think we're now going to give it a score 2-1 to the Spanish. But under the bonnet of success lay the carburetor of despair. Medina Sidonia had a problem. Where was Palmer? How was he supposed to get to him and his troops across the channel? to give the English their richly deserved beating. I think a bit of background might be helpful here. There's a problem in, of instructions, first of all. Philip had been a little vague on this aspect. The Armada was to gain control of the seas and then help Palmer cross to England with his army. No one had really thought about how Palmer was actually going to get over to the fleet to get to England. Between the deep blue sea and Flanders lay ten miles of shoal-infested waters which absolutely needed shallow drafted vessels to negotiate and which the Armada could not. Now, although the Dutch fleet wasn't as powerful as you might think at this stage given their later glorious maritime history, they did have a very handy fleet designed to work in the inner waters of the inlets and bays and estuaries. And one of the main ships they used was called the Cromster. An English soldier fighting as part of the wars described them as the best ships to fight in these waters by reason the most of them draw but little water and carry for the most part principal good artillery, some demi-cannon and many whole culverins. They were 200 ton ships with a complement of 100 men and about 14 guns. In a battle with a thousand-ton galleon, they would be toast. But a thousand-ton galleon would get nowhere near them on their home ground, because a galleon drew far too much water to get to them. And they could not make their way through the shoals. But meanwhile, a barge designed to carry soldiers across the channel, armed with at best a few pea-shooters, would equally be toast if they met a cromster out on the lash late on a dark Friday night. Now, Spain had great expertise with the perfect answer to the Cromster, the galley. So they could just roll out that squadron that they'd asked Philip for. Oh, wait. Now, I don't know about you, 
but being full of human failings, if there is a humongous problem I am supposed to deal with, I am in danger of assigning SEP status to it, which means, in the parlance of Douglas Adams, who first recognised the phenomenon, to ignore the issue, or more than that, the brain engages its own defence mechanism and simply does not allow the eyes or brain to see the problem at all. It marks it as someone else's problem, an SEP. Well, the issue about getting the feared and terrifying Spanish tercios across to England was just such an SEP. Because no matter how many barges Palmer had, and debate seems to vary on that, even if he had enough, he himself was clear they were not fighting vessels capable of keeping the Cromsters at bay. And anyway, let's say Palmer did magically find the Elder Wand and magic the Cromsters away somewhere. Once they'd met the Armada, what then? Their aim, of course, would be to float the 30 miles to bring peace and proper religion to England, by which I mean making mushy peas of the English army, of course. But although the Armada had successfully sailed up the Channel with minimal losses, it had most certainly not established local superiority and control of the seas. The English fleet had every chance of dancing round on the narrow seas, sinking those vulnerable barges with gay abandon. So look, that's a problem. First of all, though, Medina Sidonia needed to know when Palmer would embark all his men on the barges and come to meet him. He was not aware of the rather major flaw of the Cromster in the master plan. So here is the second SEP. Philip, Palmer and Medina Sidonia had assumed, again gaily, that they'd just all meet up, easy peasy, squeeze the lemon. But where? When? In a search for a suitable adjective for communication between a fleet on the Channel and Palmer in the Netherlands on the land in the 16th century, the words nippy or doddle are inappropriate. To make the point, Medina Sidonia sent a message by pinnace to Palmer as soon as he hit the Channel. Sadly, the message arrived just as the Armada itself was arriving. So, communication was hard and way too slow. Faced with these issues, not knowing where Palmer was, Medina Sidonia decided to just stop digging and he parked the fleet outside Calais. He was not happy with this, but sailing on seemed pointless until he knew where he was going. Now, when the answer did arrive, it horrified him. He had to wait six days. Palmer would take six days to embark his men on his barges. So, the Armada was faced with the cheery prospect of being anchored in an exposed roadstead, with the shoals of the Flanders bank to leeward, and an enemy to windward. In that search for adjectives, oh goody should also be excluded, and while sailing through the valley of the shadow of death, they might well have looked for that rod and staff to comfort them. Meanwhile then, on the Ark Royal on the 28th of July, Admiral Howard was confabulating with his senior commanders, debating how to discombobulate and then destroy the Spanish. The answer was pretty obvious, as it happens, and so obvious, in fact, that Medina Sidonia knew exactly what they were planning to do. Fireships, hellburners, they were the ticket here. The Armada was in an open roadstead, no harbour to protect it. 
If fire ships could get in amongst the Spanish ships, they might drive them in their panic to leeward to be dashed to death on the Flanders banks. Or they might make a dash for open sea and the formation would be broken and the English could get in amongst them. So, fire ships then. Now, as I say, Medina Sidonia was no idiot. He'd arranged for a screen of pinnaces to intercept the fire ships and tow them to safety. And that night, as the eight flaming fire ships floated into the roadstead, the pinnaces did indeed steer too safely away. The fire ships were in fact, in one sense, a complete and abject failure. They didn't manage to destroy a single measly armada ship. And yet, the fire ships were the armada's doom. In their panic to escape the fire ships and the Flanders banks, most ships just cut their anchor cables and fled for open sea and safety. That had two immediate consequences. Without anchors, reassembling to wait for Palmer would be much harder. But worse, that extraordinarily successful formation was gone. Five Spanish ships, including their flagship, remained to face the entire English fleet outside Calais, now composed of 140 ships. Medina Sidonia sent out pinnaces to order his fleet to reassemble and then headed out to meet them as well as he could. The 29th of July was the real crux of the whole affair, a running battle of nine hours long as the English got amongst the Spanish fleet, trying desperately to reform. The English had learned a vital bit of intelligence over the preceding week. They had learned the genuine weak spot of the Spanish. This was that their long-range ship-killing guns sucked, and their ability to use them sucked Svimal. Let me explain. Firing a 16th-century cannon or culverin was not like in the movies, where you fired the gun and the recoil bounced it back onto a protected deck on its little trolley, where you reloaded it double-quick time, ran it out again and fired again. First of all, the Spanish ships did not have these sort of trolleys. Their guns were pretty much immobile. And if you wanted to reload them, all you had to do was to climb over the edge of the ship and do it from the outside in, sitting on the barrel of said cannon. Which is frankly impossible to do in the middle of a battle where everyone's taking pot shots at you. Sid, go and reload that cannon. Sorry, sir, I choose life. The English didn't yet use the recoil thing either, but they could pull their guns in after firing, reload and run them out again, all in the relative safety then of the bulwarks of the ship. And then the Spanish strategy anyway was to grapple opposing ships and to overwhelm them with soldiers. Consequently, almost everyone in a Spanish ship was a soldier. The gunners were soldiers doing a bit of moonlighting, as it were, as a gunner. Every English gunner was just that, an expert gunner, end of. The result of all this was that the English rate of fire was one and a half rounds per hour, which sounds pretty panty, I must say, but apparently good for the time, because the Spanish rate of fire was also one and a half rounds, but one and a half rounds per day. Yes, you heard me right, per day. 
At Gravelina at last, then, the English came in close, realising that their risk was far less than they had been thinking. And at last, they did some real damage. The San Mateo and San Felipe were mortally stricken. The Trinidad, Valencera and Gran Griffon were so badly damaged that their crews were forced to run them aground. The Maria Juan was sunk. But the flagship fighting spirit lived on. Medina Sidonia fired the gun to reform the armada. But this time, very few indeed came. The trouble now was that the fleet was being blown onto the Zealand banks to leeward and would almost inevitably founder there. The English were actually very low now on ammo, but all they had to do was wait. Many of the Armada ships were still floating, but they were damaged, falling to pieces. One ship, indeed, was literally coming apart at the seams and had to be cinched together with a hawser that was fed round its hull, all the way round its hull, and tightened. And so the Armada panicked. It was every man for himself. Medina Sidonia was furious at the response to his messages and he sent boats to the nearest ships to bring their captains to answer why had they not answered his signal when they came into his cabin he barked didn't you hear the gun yes then why did you not rally we thought your flagship was sinking and that we should all hasten to safety there was a pause until the duke delivered his verdict on this answer hang the traitors one of the captains was indeed hung and paraded round the fleet to re-establish discipline in the fleet, pour encourager les autres, as Voltaire would have it. And then, a miracle. God breathed, and as the armada was about to be driven onto the banks, the wind changed and blew from the south away from the banks. The Armada took their chance and dived, thankfully, into the safety of the North Sea off the eastern coast of England. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the news in England was of success, but not yet victory. The Armada had reformed, and it was in the North Sea. Would it return? Palmer's army was still active and ready to board. At this point, early in August, a jolly famous thing happened. Queen Elizabeth went to Tilbury Docks. In the words of 1066 and all that, the Queen set to help everyone to be brave in the face of the great armadillo. Big Bess herself put on an enormous quantity of clothing and rode to and fro on a white horse at Tilbury, a courageous act which was warmly applauded by the English sailors. In this striking and romantic manner, the English were once again victorious. We are in legend territory again with her iconic speech to the troops, including the lines, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and the king would like them back, in the words of horrible histories. Now look, no, let's not ruin it. Here is the speech, or part of it anyway. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too and think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which, rather than any dishonour should grow by me, I myself will take up arms, I myself will be your general. 
Now, who knows if she actually said that, but it falls into the, well, she really should have category either way. It's worth noting, though, while we're at it, that the likelihood remains that if Palmer had landed, Elizabeth would have been applying for jobs in the Chelsea Bun House. When the Armada became visible from the coast of Kent, so many of the trained bands deserted that the army was reduced to 4,000 men. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The English fleet followed the Armada until the Firth of Forth, and then they turned back. By then it was clear the Spanish fleet was a busted flush. Famously, they sailed all the way around Britain to get home. Many were battered, most with few provisions left. Some ships sunk, battered by the weather. Over 1,200 bodies, for example, were washed onto Donegal Bay. Others ran onto the coast of Ireland. The Grand Grin ran ashore off Clare Island. Where this happened, the Irish tended to greet them, relieve them of their valuables, and send them on their way, or even look after them and give them food. In this case, though, and in some cases, it appears that many Spaniards were killed. When the English in Ireland got hold of them, they were often slaughtered or at best imprisoned. The odd story of mercy does survive. Christopher Carlyle, the governor at the time, sent his prisoners to Scotland, paying for transport out of his own pocket. Back in Spain, the news alternated wildly. On the 7th of August came a report of a great Spanish victory off the Isle of Wight. Fifteen English galleons had been sunk. Drake had been forced to flee in a small boat. Hurrah! In France, Mendoza used the good news to continue the process of tying Henry III to the Catholic League, and he built a huge celebration bonfire outside his embassy in preparation for the final confirmation. The next news was that the Armada was at Calais and the link-up had been achieved with Palmer. Hooray! On the 12th of August, Mendoza went to the King of France and told him all about the victories and pressed him to order a celebration. Henry III heard him out and I imagine was rather enjoying himself since then he was able to tell his would-be master that in fact the Armada had been chased out of Calais in bad order. News continued to be confused. On the 13th of August came the news there'd been a battle off Scotland and that Drake himself, ever the Spanish obsession, had been captured. Hurrah! At this, Mendoza lit his celebratory bonfire and sent the report to Philip. On the 28th of August, William Allen of the English College heard the news of victory and pressed the Spanish to allow him to go to England immediately to start the good work of bringing England back to the rightful church. But now news started to arrive from England, courtesy of the Privy Council. And it was a very different story. News started to come back from Ireland too, even more grim. A pamphlet was produced called A Pack of Spanish Lies, contrasting the Spanish news with the news of Protestant delivery, and Protestant Europe dared to hope that the expected disaster had not in fact happened. But as late as the 29th of September, Mendoza was sending positive reports to Philip. But Philip was learning the truth from other 
more damning reports. If God does not send us a miracle, he wrote, I hope to die and go to him, which is what I pray for, so as not to see so much ill fortune and disgrace. Please, God, let me be mistaken, but I do not think it is so. And then Medina Sidonia himself struggled into port, and Philip knew the terrible truth for sure. He scrawled on Mendoza's latest letter for the action of an aide. Nothing of this is true. It would be well to tell him so. Ships kept dribbling in, but when the final accounting was done, 60 of the 130 ships that left had been destroyed one way or another. 15,000 men may have died. Philip was, of course, gutted. But Philip was not broken and did his best to give positive or reassuring messages to his people and to explain what had happened. We are bound to give praise to God for all things which he is pleased to do. Now I give thanks to him for the mercy he has shown. In the storms through which the Armada sailed, it might have suffered a worse fate, and that its ill fortune was no greater must be credited to the prayers for its good success, so devoutly and continuously offered. Here, maybe, is the start of another myth about the Armada, that it was all due to crappy English weather, that storms destroyed the Armada, not the English. Well, not so. You have heard the story, and did I mention storms? No, I did not. And yet the legend on one of Elizabeth's Armada medals was itself. God breathed, and they were scattered. It pays, of course, to have God on your side, and in the fight to claim God's support, the myth of the divine Protestant wind was born. Philip, meanwhile, really wasn't crushed and met the defeat with dignity and intelligence. And to English horror, this was not the end of the affair. Philip simply spent his effort thinking what he needed to do to succeed next time. And there would be a next time. But despite Philip's fortitude, the defeat was another hideous blow to Spanish confidence. The Duke of Medina Sidonia himself had this brought home to him when on his way home for surely the most well-deserved rest in the history of well-deserved rests. He was discovered at a hotel by a bunch of lads. As a bunch of lads will, they laid into the Duke, crying out that Drake was coming to scare him and calling him Duke Chicken. Meanwhile, one of the monks at the Escorial wrote that the defeat was the greatest disaster to strike Spain in over 600 years. His colleague agreed that it was worthy to be wept over forever because it lost us respect and the good reputation among warlike people that we used to have. The feeling it caused in all Spain was extraordinary. Almost the entire country went into mourning. People talked of nothing else. The Dutch and the English, meanwhile, were as delighted as the Spanish were depressed. The great battle pennant of the San Mateo was laid out in Leiden Cathedral in celebration. Poems in Latin were written and read out. The satisfaction was greater that the curse also seems to have struck Palmer, when he gave up on the Armada and went instead to capture the town of Bergen, 
the citizens there resisted fiercely, and after six weeks, the invincible Palmer had to give up. Maybe something fundamental had changed. Maybe momentum had swung the other way at last. Interestingly, the Dutch also presented Elizabeth as the champion of Protestantism in portrait in a way that the English did not. So a Dutch engraving portrayed her as Europa, planted across all Europe. While in England, in things like the Ditchley portrait, it is her dominion of England that is emphasised. In England, a celebration was held on the 24th of November and it was designated as a National Day of Celebration. Though to be sadly honest, the men who had really won the battle, the ordinary English seamen, were barely remembered, even though almost half of them were dead from wounds or most likely disease by Christmas of that year. Many were not properly paid or looked after. Lord Howard's sense of responsibility was far from typical. Nonetheless, England celebrated. Ballads were particularly popular in Elizabethan England. They were a way not necessarily of hanging a bit, having a bit of a sing-song down the boozer, but also a way of spreading news and celebrating good news. Many have survived celebrating the Armada's defeat. It was accompanied by Burley's widely circulated pamphlet of banter pouring scorn on the invincible Armada. Well, I must say I had not expected to spend so long on the Armada, so once more I will have to leave other aspects of the Anglo-Spanish War to future episode. But let us reflect for the moment about the impact of this story and its significance. The story is interestingly told as a bit of a one-off. The Armada sailed, we gave it a kicking, it slunk off home, cry Harry and all that. But in fact it was only the very beginning of the Anglo-Spanish War, not the end. There are another 16 years to come. There are two more armadas to come from Spain. Who's ever heard of them, I might ask? And the very next year there will be an English armada, which will, to be a plot spoiler, probably not do that well. Peace would not be signed until 1604, and the story is very much this one armada, which is, dare I admit it, a bit of a damp squib. I mean, it's nothing on Poitiers or even Morlaix, and not a patch on the glories of Falkirk. Also, no one at the time thought this was the end of it all, least of all Philip, or indeed Elizabeth and her captains. And yet, to some Spanish observers, the Armada was the start of the end, the start of the decline of Spain as an imperial power, it fired up a genre of anti-imperial polemic in Spain, the first of which was called Farewell to the Ladies of the Court, to the Gallant Sailing on the Armada, which essentially ridiculed the whole mission. The defeat, like the exploits of Drake, sapped Spanish confidence. It also damaged her reputation as the leader of Catholic Europe, and the peak of her prestige had maybe passed a little. It did the opposite for England, of course. The English of Elizabethan days had not very much of today's middle-class fastidiousness about and distaste for patriotism or, God forbid, flag-waving. They lapped it up. Shakespeare really knew his audience. The reign of Elizabeth gave much to the development of English national consciousness and self-belief, which would, of course, have consequences of variable attractiveness. And the Armada was a major part of that. 
the English loved their ships going into battle and came out of it ever more convinced that they could take on the Spanish Empire and win. And yet they were to find instead that things actually got much harder as Spain invested in proper defence. But look, confidence was the thing. This confidence is frequently broadened in critiques of the Armada to link it to a general sense of optimism in Elizabethan England. Shakespeare's line in King John is used as an, exa an example of that. Come the three corners of the world in arms and we shall shock them. To be honest, I suspect this is overstating it. In the 1590s, Elizabethan England would suffer the shock of famine, plague, an expensive and very long war in Ireland, and the war against Spain would have as many defeats as successes. England was still a small, damp place off the coast of Europe. It's just that now it had a navy which gave it some security and a sense of confidence. In the Netherlands, the English victory changed little in strictly military terms, but it did close down those in the United Provinces who looked for accommodation and negotiation with Spain, and the struggle for independence was renewed. And maybe in France, most significantly, it gave Henry III the confidence to strike back and reject the dominance of the Catholic Guise and the Catholic League and thereby it would distract Palmer from his work to reduce the United Provinces to come south and help with events in France. It was interesting in this exercise to read secondary sources from as wide a range as Garrett Mattingly's 1959 classic The Defeat of Armada, and it is a classic by the way, to more modern texts. It gives you an idea of how attitudes have changed Spanish historians have spent a deal of time minimising the extent to which English defeated the Armada to one of defeat by the weather. That was the story as I understood it, actually, and it's fascinating to realise that while the weather and the journey would be the cause for most of the Spanish losses, not English guns, the reason for their flight was not the weather, but the English actions at Calais and Gravelines and the strength of the Dutch in preventing a link-up between Palmer and the Armada. In Garrett Mattingly's book, the claims are a bit more grandiose, although he rejects the link with an explosion of literary genius in England which had apparently previously been a claim. But he does note that, whether true or not, the Armada came for a long period to be covered with a golden mist of heroism. Imagine the teaching of history as it once used to be in the days of Herodotus or as songs by bards in the halls of the mighty of the stories of great events by great heroes building a sense of belonging and of shared origin and achievement. It became a story of the defence of freedom against tyranny, of the weak over the strong. You've heard some of the detail, so you know that's broadly tripe. But what is true is that this is what many people believed for some time in Protestant Europe, and that has its own historical significance. That's all then, folks, as Porky Pig used to say, and on occasion, Bugs Bunny. Next week, I have the return of Adam Preston for you to talk of the Trafalgar Way, and then I hope to return as quickly as I can with the rest of the Anglo-Spanish War, the Nine Years' War in Ireland, and the rather grim decade of the 1590s. Meanwhile, members... Don't be shy to get in touch, please. And everyone 
head to the website for the Great Medieval Monarchs poll and prize draw. Who was the most impressive medieval monarch? Do you want to earn yourself an Edward I penny or an Elizabeth I penny? Head to thehistoryofengland.co.uk to get involved. The poll is up right now. Finally, thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks for your comments and reviews. It would make no sense if you did not listen. Until next week, then, and the story of the Trafalgar Way. in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.